0: Today is July eighth, two 2010, and my guest is John Taylor, the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford University and the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution. John, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be back. Thank you, Russ. Our topic today is the state of the economy. Um, a lot of people are worried about a double-dip recession. It's, the economy appears to be, quote, losing steam, a metaphor I always find annoying, That as if it's <laughs> some great engine that has to be stoked constantly – uh, where do you think we're headed? I think it's slow. there's a slowdown from uh, the beginning of what looked like a stronger
1: recovery. Uh, the last year, we growth went down from 5-6 to 2-7 uh, first quarter of this year. So it seems to me it's a slowdown. I don't see another uh, recession unless there's a big shock of some kind, some kind of a shock. Uh, It seems to me uh, a slowdown. I think that the recovery itself is becoming a little disappointing, though. It seems like it uh, could have been better. Uh, There's not a lot uh, that I see picking up. I'm worried about the uncertainty about policy. So I think it's, uh, unfortunately, a little bit of a lackluster recovery. But I don't see a a double dip right now unless
0: there's some other shock. What do you think is going on in the labor market? When we talk about the recovery being disappointing, it's one the main area I think people point to is that job growth has been mediocre. Uh, unemployment has only come down to the extent that people have been discouraged. Uh, what do you think is happening there?
1: Well, I think partly it's the it's the slow of the slowness of the recovery. It's it's the uh, you know when you're getting growth of two and a half three percent, that's not much faster than the potential of the economy and the growth of the labor force at this point. So. The thing is, you need to have more growth than that to get the unemployment down when it gets so high. So I think partly it's that. But it's also this uh, factor that we've seen in a lot of the recent uh, recessions. It's the lagging of job growth. It's, it's coming slow. I think in this case, you've got some other factors. We're debating the unemployment compensation continuing its length. So I think this dis- sometimes discourages. I think also there's, in this case, since it's the, it's been... Uh, a big recession compared to what we have had for the last twenty five years, even longer, that people have used this opportunity to make some force adjustments in their workforce.
0: Yeah.
1: see that at uh, here at Stanford, see it at private firms, and so that means it 's a little hard to come back rapidly to to some of those jobs. so I think that 's a little
0: different this time. I want to talk about two issues related to the labor market, uh, and then we 'll turn to some policy questions. What do you think of this argument about productivity uh, and its behavior over the, over the business cycle? Some have argued that part of the reason that job growth has been so sluggish is that productivity growth has been so spectacular, uh, which is unusual, uh, that we need to uh, – it's harder to add jobs because firms are getting so much out of their existing workforce. They don't have the demand for workers that they normally have. Do you think there's anything to that argument? No, I really, it's, it's,
1: an, it's an old argument. People say that you, high productivity means lower job growth. I, I don't see that. It seems to me high productivity is a, is a benefit. You get more for a given amount of work, and that's uh, people demand the product. So I don't really see that as something that's you know maybe short-term. Now and then it can have some effects. But the longer term, it seems to me, any reasonable time period—that's not something that discourages employment. Is that those are decisions to hire workers? They're, in fact, they're more productive when
0: productivity is higher. So they're for a given real wage, is more opportunity to hire workers. Is it true that productivity has been growing over over this over the last couple years, though, during the recession and and the aftermath? Uh, Do you know those numbers? Yes,
1: productivity. And always, of course, productivity spurts in a recovery, right? Because you're getting a uh, increase in output without. Uh, is much of an increase in employment. That always happens. Going into recessions, you get a bit, a little bit of the reverse, and in that case, this hasn't happened as so much, this downturn. Um, and I think that has to do with this fact that it's been an opportunity for a lot of firms to make some force adjustments, and of course that increases productivity there. Have, this may be a time when people realize, geez, we've got this computing services, now maybe we can... Since the times are weak or we have some excuses, we can adjust the number of workers used with these computers. And so that is an extra increase in productivity that you see measured. And I think you saw that in the recession.
0: Uh, let's turn to that unemployment insurance issue that you mentioned. Uh, the two great economists, uh, Paul Krugman and Nancy Pelosi, have recently been quoted as saying uh, that unemployment insurance is a great stimulus uh, to recovery, uh, suggesting a sort of free lunch You have these unemployed people uh you uh give them you extend the <clears throat> the term of of unemployment insurance longer than you had in the past you keep extending it because that way they have more money to spend in the economy the multiplier kicks in and so not only do you ameliorate their pain and suffering which everybody's in favor of but you also uh enhance the the growth of the economy uh in all seriousness that argument has been advanced by by Paul Krugman and mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi did Latch onto it um, as a, uh, a which I think she called a win-win. Um, what do you think is going on there in unemployment? No, I don't, I don't think
1: that's a uh, correct argument. They're of course missing one big part of it is that the extra uh, extension of unemployment reduces some of the incentives to actually take a job, which might not have been as attractive otherwise. So I think that's that's got to be a big part of this argument, and that's neglected. I think probably. In general, you you hear incentives sort of downplayed by um, people, especially in a recession, the incentives are downplayed, and you think of these more Keynesian kinds of effects. That's so that's what they're stressing. Seems to me that's a mistake. And it, it, even in bad times, you have huge amounts of incentives that are affected by public policy. In fact, you know we saw that in some of the things like cash for clunkers, huge incentive effects to buy early, and then it just plummeted later. First-time home buyers, so. So those incentive effects are there, and I think that it's very strong in the case of unemployment uh, benefits. The uh, Keynesian side of it, uh, I just don't see that in the data. You know, we've we've had uh, a big stimulus package here. Part of it is sending checks to people who are uh, lower income. Part of it is uh, unemployment compensation. And as in my reading, it hasn't really done Much good. So, as we theorize, as Paul Krugman and others theorize, the data is coming in and suggesting something quite different.
0: Let me play uh, devil's advocate on that for a minute, uh, because you know when you go back to the Great Depression, the standard view used to be that the Great Depression was was the great showcase of Keynesian policy. The New Deal came along. Roosevelt used deficit spending and he primed the pump, put the steam back in the engine, and and the economy recovered. course there 's not a lot of evidence that that 's true the economy did recover uh, from its nadir its low point in uh thirty two or thirty three but that recovery stalled in thirty eight Some say it was because of monetary policy but uh, but the interestingly to me, the general consensus I think now of people who are advocates of Keynesianism is that Keynesianism was not tried by roosevelt he didn 't spend enough it wasn 't fin- it was he raised taxes he wasn 't enough of an aggressive deficit spender. And I, I have a feeling we're going to get a similar story as this recovery fizzles going 20 and 25 years from now. We're going to look back on it and say, well, we didn't really try the stimulus package. It wasn't big enough. And for example, uh, we're now in July of 2010, so we're 17 months or so into the signing of the bill. Uh, there have been 100, There's been $415 billion spent so far not the six, seven, eighty-seven you heard about. Some say it's higher than that even. Of that four hundred fifteen, one hundred and sixty-three billion, were tax rebates, which for Keynesians is still stimulus. You and I are skeptical of it. Uh, there was only two hundred and fifty-two billion of direct spending so far, and only fourteen billion of that, by the way, was Department of Transportation spending. Yeah. So five percent was what infrastructure. Might, yeah, uh, which is not the sort of way it's it's portrayed. So. Should that have had an effect, that amount of spending? Um, Is there any case for the the Keynesian argument that we've got to do more, we didn't do enough, it was just a small amount?
1: Well, it didn't have much effect, that's for sure. Part of it because it was small. It was amazing how small it was. But I think you have to realize that's the reality. That's what happened. That's uh, that's what we get from this program. It's not like you can wave a a magic wand and have everything spent in the first two months. You have the... Reality of environmental permits and reality of people don't want the project here; they want it somewhere else, and that delays uh, the spending. So that's that's the reality. I think, though, that if you just look at the numbers, the, both the downturn for that and the upturn is this private investment. I mean, a lot of inventory investment, private investment, discouraged in the panic, and then picking up, realizing things weren't so bad. So I don't even if it's um, a small amount, I see that small amount as having a relatively insignificant effect, especially when you include these transfer payments, uh, rebates, or whatever you call them. They just really have not, if you can look at the numbers and see that they have not jump-started consumption as has been advertised. So I think it's one of the problems with this whole discussion that people are having on both sides is, in many respects, it's, it's a theoretical argument. We're using our theory, which is good, but in the meantime, we have all this data, and that's, that's, it's good you're bringing these figures out, and the data seems to me to show it's not working, and so doing more of it is bad. Plus, and, it's, and I think many other countries around the world are realizing this, plus uh, there's some, there are some real negatives. There are There is the increased debt. There is the increased expectation of higher taxes to pay for it, and those are definitely drags. We have those in some of our models. Models I use have those factors. Uh, and they're,
0: now they're coming home to roost already. So do you think, let's talk about that, let's step back from the current mess for a minute and, and talk about that empirical question. Do you think we have anything remotely reliable uh, that we know or understand about what we would call crowding out? Uh, the expectations of, to a lot of people, it's just obviously true that if you give people money and they spend it, it stimulates. They ignore the fact that it they often don't spend it. They ignore the fact that other spending might go down in the face of that spending, and so... One of those issues, that's a crowding out phenomenon, the argument would be, well, when people are worried about those future higher taxes, they are going to be more conservative, more prudent, uh, and spend less. Uh, do we know anything about the magnitude of that? Or are they, you know, we, we talked earlier about incentives. Uh, those of us who are less interventionists tend to argue that, that there's, those incentives are strong. Empirically, is there much evidence that people take those effects into account when they make their own decisions?
1: Well, on the micro side, there's lots of evidence, but don't you think you should just point to a couple of these uh, natural experiments we've had—the cash for clunkers, huge incentive effects—you can see that right there in the numbers. Micro, macro, first-time home buyers, huge incentive effects. So it's not like it's not out there. Um,
0: so, I'd say that's a different of a different nature than saying if we spend 780 billion over the next three or four years, your taxes are going to be higher. Uh, if you're in the 60% of the American populace that pays income taxes, uh, your income taxes are going to be higher, and therefore you're going to respond to that spending program by cutting back. Is that, is there, do we have any evidence on that? Well, we have direct evidence that higher taxes
1: discourage um, anything that's taxed. So I think the link that you're looking for is what evidence do we have that links people's expectations yeah. of future deficits to that, and there it's necessarily weak. You don't have... You just have to go with what you know will affect the behavior, which is the tax increase. And um, just common sense says that the higher taxes are going to come in the future. uh, which You can see that's on the books right now, by the way, uh, unless the Congress makes some changes. So I think it definitely is affecting people's behavior. But you don't have the, you know, expectations are... Uh, harder to measure, so i don 't think the evidence is as strong
0: let 's go and let 's go back to the private investment point. talk elaborate on that What, what happened to private investment over the last few years that's uh, and what do you think explains it
1: Well first, if you look at the this recession and the recovery uh, GDP growth declined a lot a uh, couple couple three quarters and then it 's flattened out it increased a lot and it's it 's stabilized and so yeah, there 's a huge dip that 's the recession. You can look at the different components of GDP, consumption, investment, etc., and see to what extent some of those are more important. When you do that, by far the biggest is investment. So the the idea is firms were quite uh, frightened, not only in the United States, but globally, so they cut back on their investment. Their sales dropped, so they also cut back on inventory investment. It's actually very rapid around the world. Uh, When they saw that there was a a bottom, it wasn't the end of the world, and I think that was as early as December 2008, January 2009, it starts turned around. You can see that in measures of expectation. So investment turns around, and naturally inventory investment turns around. So that cycle is really explained by the investment and the natural dynamics of the economy. You superimpose onto that, the various actions, the stimulus package, cash for clunkers, first-time homebuyers, and you see little blips and ripples, but it's this main trajectory is the private economy recovering, and of course now the
0: recovery is slowing. Uh, I think there's a similar pattern in the Great Depression. Um, enormous decrease in private investment, mm-hmm. and then it stagnated, actually, in the face of um, what uh, some folks call regime uncertainty, the mm-hmm. all the chaos of the rule changes and the policy changes. Do we see any evidence of a loss of con- or an uncertainty about the future uh, on the part of private investment, or has it pretty much recovered steadily since that well, bottom? Well,
1: private investment, as the uh, pause has occurred, as you've gone from 5.6% to 2.7% for the first quarter, the same investment, you see investment rising and then, and then slowing down. There's no question. That's, that's part of my story. It's largely investment-driven. The reasons for that, uh, it's not completely clear. I emphasize a lot the same things you mentioned uh, in the Great Depression, uncertainty about policy because you do have, first of all, this debt is increasing in ways that uh, we haven't seen it before. It's projected by the CBO to be 947 percent of GDP uh, if we don't make a correction. Um, and people, that's an, there's an inconsistency that can't stand. Something's got to give. Right? right? Not a, that's not a, a
0: forecast. That's just a a warning flag. <laughs> it's 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 the implication get of f-
1: current uh, yeah. policy. So either current policy has to change, or there's some other kind of a disaster that that resolves the inconsistency. The disaster could be a hyperinflation. Disaster could be U.S. Uh, doesn't pay its debt, which in this case is an enormous harm to the country. So those are the disastrous scenarios. The hope is that you get the policy correction, but people don't see that playing out. It's still not there yet. There's still not uh, nobody's articulating that strategy. So I think that's one of the biggest uncertainties. And of course, people worry about that. It's part of the resolution is going to be tax increases, and and that of course for the economy is a negative. So there's that uncertainty. Plus you have a regulatory reform on the financial side, which is very complex. And um, and it's going to be left to the regulators to implement regulators who were quite disappointing during the crisis itself, and so that's another element of uncertainty. Healthcare, and then you have healthcare, of course, which, which is also is already out you know there. How that's no going to right? So, uh, so there's a lot. People are still talking about you know, environmental legislation, uh, thinking about, and then uh, I, I would say to add to this, there's me, worries about just the general rule of law. You've got um, you had this intervention with the automobile companies, now you're having the strange kind of interventions with BP and the, putting them, the money aside to be allocated by government officials. So there's a lot of things there that I think, um, if you're thinking about how, I think the rule of law has been so important for the United States and for our um, economic system, that if we start to lose that, it could have effects which, we, which could be
0: pretty bad. may yeah. not be instant, instantaneous, it might erode over time. Uh, let's turn to monetary policy. Um, what do you think the Fed... Well, let's, let me start back. Try to just help me understand what the Fed's been doing uh, over the last, say, six months, and what do you think uh, they ought to be doing?
1: Well, they've got the interest rate down to the bare minimum. That's pretty obvious. And that it came down back in um, December of 2008. So it's a It's, a it's been sitting time. there at a quarter, I think, there. right? A quarter of a percent? Between zero and, and a quarter. The average federal average funds rate. Average, that's the federal funds rate, between zero and a quarter. Uh, and, and long rates have actually come down rather than up recently because of I think it's a flight to safety to some extent from concerns about what's going on in Europe. But the um, the other big thing about monetary policy is, especially in the last year and a half, the major purchases of mortgages uh, by the Fed driven mortgage-backed securities. And that's uh, blown up their balance sheet. In order to buy those securities, they have to effectively print money, which uh, electronically... They just credit the bank's balance sheets with with deposits at the Fed, so-called reserves. So their balance sheet uh, in the technical lingo has uh, really exploded. And it really has to come down uh, if they're going to take control of monetary policy at some point. So that's, and I I don't think that those purchases of mortgages have been very effective. We're just, empirical work is just proceeding. We did some uh, work here on that at uh, at Hoover and at Stanford trying to estimate the impacts and find that it's been a very small impact on the mortgage market. But in the meantime, it's changed the monetary policy um, in a way that's somewhat worrisome to me. That's more like fiscal policy or credit allocation policy, not monetary policy classically defined, where you're controlling money growth to keep the economy stable and inflation low, and so it raises questions about independence of the Fed. Uh, Congress, of course, has, has raised a lot of those questions because of these actions. It's added to all the things done uh, in the worst of the crisis, the bailouts of certain firms with Federal Reserve funds. And so I, I really think the Fed should get back to, I call it the framework that worked uh, before all this began,
0: do that as soon as possible. How would it do that, though, given, I think, the balance sheet's about $2 trillion. They hold a massive amount yes. of these mortgage-backed securities, some of which they've purchased from banks, and others, they are, if I understand it correctly, and I find it remarkably opaque, which is depressing, mm-hmm. they're basically funding the mortgage market through Fannie and Freddie. Fannie and Freddie are used to be quasi-public, quasi-private, whatever you want to call it. They were. put into conservatorship in September of 2008. And since then, they continue to operate, holding interest rates artificially low, or I don't know how artificial it is now in this environment, but they're getting their funds effectively through the government, right? Isn't the Fed simply acquiring all the mortgages that they're backing? uh,
1: It had been doing that. It it bought a trillion and a quarter of the mortgage-backed securities, but they stopped in in April of this year. Okay. So they're not buying them anymore. So their program is over. They, they bought them. and So when I say it didn't work, I, th- I find that the purchases of those mortgages didn't move rates around when you control for other factors, risk factors, other things moving the rates around. So, well, I think they could sell those mortgage-backed securities. Um, if they do it in a gradual way, then other people will buy the securities. I think, the ba- of course, the banks have lots of reserves with which to buy uh... longer term securities so i think it's it's quite possible to do that without being disruptive at all that's what my data show at least you know, reality may be different but so go at it gradually i think politically it's hard for the fed to do that because they'll be seen to be selling mortgage mortgages or what you mortgage-backed securities uh, at a time where the economy is struggling so
0: politically it's hard for them to do that and I, when you say politically i assume you mean because it's going to take reserves out of the system, correct? So it, it, will it take would reserves be contractionary.
1: Out of the, it will take reserves out of the system. Not clear. No, it's not at all clear it's contractionary because those are all excess reserves in the sense yeah. that the, the banks are just sitting But I don't want to say it's not clear. I don't, I don't want to say anyone knows for sure because there's a puzzle about why the banks are holding all those excess reserves, so to speak. Why are they holding those? They seem to just take on whatever the Fed provides, uh, Three hundred billion here, three hundred billion there. They just take it on, but uh, clearly they're holding them for some reason. So reducing those too fast could also be worrisome. It's actually another uh, concern I have with all these unorthodox policies that the Fed undertook, because unwinding them is is could lead to some problems. I think the mortgage side should be okay, but you're right to say, well, that'll reduce bank reserves, and that could be. I don't think it's con- it's you're, it's safe to say it's contractionary because. The They're just sitting there. The,
0: yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Um, I just want to mention to our listeners that we've, we've talked about a bunch of numbers here. John's talking about private investment and the path over the recession and and now uh, Federal Reserve policy and the implications for uh, mortgage rates. You've written about these in very accessible ways, and we'll put links up to those, those papers. So if you're out there uh, listening, John recently testified uh, before Congress on the stimulus package and why your reading of the numbers suggests it didn't have any impact. So if you're listening out there and you want to look a little more closely, we'll put those up uh, on the web. Uh, sticking with the Fed for a minute, l- let me let me tell a, an unattractive story and see if you think there's anything to it, which um, since there's so much going on and it's a little bit bewildering, it's I find it a bit uh, distressing in a democracy that that the head of the Fed can act with so much discretion without much public explanation. Occasionally he gets called to front of Congress where his job is to say as little as possible, which is to me not ideal in a, in a democracy. But let's take a different argument. Uh, it goes as follows. Uh, the Fed looked at the banks in 2008 and saw disaster. Uh, they kept that quiet. They said, well, some banks are healthy, some aren't. We'll make everybody uh, take uh, TARP money because we don't want to, even though there are many firms that are solvent, totally fine, who have been prudent, uh, we don't want to put the Imprudent firms at risk because we could have a catastrophic set of, of, of bankruptcies. What they seem to have pursued since then is a set of subsidies to the banking system. So the purchases of mortgage backed securities, you know, they were on the books at a certain level at those banks. Uh, they were probably not correct the level that was they were marked to. So the Fed basically bought those and gave them a goodie. Uh, the Fed continues to today to pay. A quarter of a percent of interest on reserves, which is a historically unprecedented, I think, policy, which encourages banks to keep their money at the Fed and just receive that nice flow, which is a subsidy from me to them, I think. And so it's – to me, unless I'm missing something here, this is either a really nasty political uh, payoff or it's a desperation move to hide the insolvency of this sector that could have catastrophic impacts. Uh, what, What do you think of that story?
1: It's definitely, uh, part of the reason for this is to help the banks. To, to If you have a very low interest rate um, that they can borrow money at in the, in the federal funds market held low by the Fed, uh, then they can lend at higher rates. So that helps bank profitability, there's no question about it. Uh, the interest on um, reserves held at the Fed, deposits held at the Fed, is a quarter of a percent. And the paying interest on reserves is what's uh, unprecedented, just started uh, right before the panic began, and it was originally higher and it came down so the reason the Fed is doing that, and I agree it could be zero be just as healthy if it were zero. The reason they're doing that is they want to be able to control the interest rate even if there's a lot of excess money in the economy okay so now there's a lot of excess we we'll call it excess reserves in the banks. So there's so much that that's why they drive the interest rate down to zero. But in addition, the Fed can affect the interest rate by, by setting the interest it pays on the reserves that banks hold with it. So there's sort of two different instruments. Since they don't want to reduce the money supply, they don't want to reduce those reserves for various reasons. They want to be able to raise the interest rate when they have to, so they're holding that rate there so that when, they, when and if they have to raise interest rates, they'll be able to do it by paying interest on reserves. It could be zero now. There's no question at this point it would be just so close to zero anyway because it'd be zero. But I think
0: they're holding it there so that when the time comes, they'll be able to raise it. But why would they want, other than to help banks' balance sheets, again for either political reasons, unattractive public choice reasons, or to avoid this catastrophe, why would they want to encourage banks to hold those to hold excess reserves? So the, they pumped, they bought these mortgage-backed securities and other assets from banks, mm-hmm. including treasuries and other things. They pumped all these reserves in, but those reserves didn't go into the economy. Right. Those banks just they just sat on them. Right. So the the classical mechanism by which the Fed would be expansionary. The so-called, uh, you know, the, the Bernanke promise will never make the same mistake we made in the Great Depression, where where the Fed, you know, contracted the money supply. Haven't they effectively followed a non-expansionary policy in the midst of a crisis? Or to put it another way, if they hadn't been paying uh, interest on those reserves, would banks have been more encouraged to do something productive with it? Well, I, I don't. What think, am I missing it, here? Well,
1: the, what you are missing is twenty-five basis points, so it's, it's now a very low rate. Rather than zero, it's 0.25. So the question is, how much difference would it make right now if it was zero? I don't know. I agree if it's two or three or four, obviously it could make a, a big difference. But that very low rate seems to me... Here's, the, here's what you want to think about, Russ, as a counterfactual. If the rate were zero, would mean the banks get rid of all those reserves? And I don't think so. They're holding them for other reasons. They're holding them because... Scared. are worried uh-huh. about their capital ratios, worried about the loans that they could make. And so, I'd, again, I'd like to see it at zero, but I just have to say I don't think that would, would make the banks lend out all those reserves. Maybe we should just set it to zero and see, but I think it's too low a rate uh, to make much of a difference. And again, the reason why the Fed wants to do that is they think about their target funds rate, not literally zero now. They're talking zero to 0.25 is their, what they want it to be. And so when the time comes that they want to raise it to half a percent, one percent, two percent. Most likely, they're going to do that by raising the interest rate that they pay on bank reserves. They're not going to re- change the money supply because there's so much reserves out there; they can't really do it. So, in a way, that interest on reserves is an instrument that is consistent with where they want the overall interest rate to be, which is between is is in this range, zero to point two five. It's not literally zero; it's zero to point two five. So, the again, this is to say it again, I guess, if they when they come time to raise the short-term interest rate, uh, almost for sure they're going to do that by
0: raising the interest rate they pay uh, banks on the okay, so Now I'm really confused. So l- let me think about my micro situation. I had the misfortune the other day of looking at my uh, money market fund. Uh, my money market fund is uh, paying a tenth of a percent. For those of you who know the rule of 72, you divide the interest rate into <laughs> 72 doesn't really work it, and it tells you how many periods it takes for your money to double. Uh, in this case, it doesn't really work because it's such a low number. A low, but yeah. but applying it uh, foolishly, a mere 720 years from now, my money will double, and that of course doesn't really encourage me. It is tax free. It's munis, Uh so <laughs> it's 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 really a, a comfort there. Um, so my investment opportunities, and uh, of course I'm. Um, just one little investor. My investment opportunities are miserable right now. I look at the S&P, the stock market, equities. I'm scared. I don't know what they hold. There's treasuries. There's not much else. There's not much else. Now, one view is there's not much else because, well, people are scared and they don't have anything to invest in. But, But surely the fact that banks have this guaranteed quarter of a percent holds interest rates lower than they otherwise would be, or do you disagree with that?
1: Higher than those would be. I mean, higher than they otherwise would be.
0: Yeah. Because
1: zero is presumably the alternative to...
0: Well, I don't know, actually. Why, if there were... Um, they're not going to offer me anything higher than... than they're not going to invest their money in high... It'd have to be a lot higher than that for them because of the risk of, of the current situation... But but the market's being isn't it artificially being held down? You think it's being artificially pushed up?
1: The market is uh, yeah, uh, the market is being artificially held down by this massive amount of bank reserves that's out there. So the you know this interest rate in the market is determined by the supply and demand for money in the market, bank reserves. So there's this incredible excess of reserves, which drove the interest rate down to near zero. Okay? And that happened in the, in the fall of 2008. It was a 2 percent, went down to 1 percent as the Fed just expanded uh, this money supply. By that, I mean the bank reserves. Um, now, consistent with that, they also had dropped the interest they pay on reserves because it was a 2 percent. And again, unprecedented, they hadn't done that for, before, but it was at 2 percent. And then they lowered that interest on reserves as the market interest rate came, comes down. So in a way, the interest on reserves now at twenty five basis points um, is um, probably a little above the market, quite frankly, and that's what your point is. is If if you could lower it, you get even a slightly lower uh, interest rate, and uh, and I mean that might be good. Now people
0: argue that that very low interest rate because there be be more. You have to look at the quantity, right? We tend to look at the at the price, but what we care about is is activity. So that money's just sitting there, right? It, for, uh, the way I'm thinking about it, maybe maybe I've got the the micro the supply and demand wrong in my mind. If there was a one percent alternative that a bank could earn, it's risky compared to a twenty-five a quarter of a percent sure thing. They stick with a quarter percent sure thing, and the money sticks in their yeah. in their balance sheet. Now it's true that that the market rate might go down, but there'd be investment, there'd be activity instead of just sitting
1: there. You'd get just to be sure. So in other words, you're saying instead of seventy-five basis point margin you got a 100 basis yeah. point margin, a 90 basis, basis point yeah. margin. could be. It
0: could be a factor. I just don't think it's, it's large enough to...
1: I guess the question you know, of elasticity,
0: in, how responsive people be to the small changes in, yeah. in interest rates. Um, so you're suggesting that that policy lever for them is important because if market rates start to go higher in the future, the Fed will then be able to ratchet that number up and ease oh, mm-hmm. the rate at which the reserves flow back into the system and avoid inflation. Is that what they're worrying put about? It, I put it slightly differently. Uh, traditionally, monetary policy affects
1: the short-term interest rate by adjusting supply and demand for money. Just a straight micro story, right? Yeah. But now they have pushed so much money out there that the supply just is overwhelmed and driven the interest rate essentially to zero. Okay. So there's two ways they could raise the interest rate. One is pull back on the supply. Right, then that's going to raise the raise the interest rate, pull back on that supply, but most likely they're not going to do that. I actually think they should do that, but most likely they're not going to do that because they are worried about selling off the mortgage-backed securities that they need to do to get that money down. Okay, so they're most likely not going to do that. So what do they do instead? Well, we'll just set the interest rate that banks that we pay the banks, and that's going to affect the market interest rate. The banks will say, okay, uh, Fed's paying me. One percent. That's going to come back just by arbitrage and affect the market interest rate. So that's another way they can do it. They can just leave that gigantic amount of reserves out there, but just but just say that we were paying the banks this amount. And so that most likely that's when they what they're going to do when in fact
0: they do raise interest rates. But that's to reduce the volume of those excess reserves flooding the market in the future as confidence returns, right? Mm-hmm. That's the mop. You know. When, we, when we, I've talked to Alan Meltzer about this on the program. You know, the claim is that the Fed can you – know, Bernanke reassures us that when, when times get better, all those excess reserves can be mopped up. But, of course, Meltzer argues that they won't have the political will to do that, that to raise interest rates as the economy is recovering. So they're probably going to find that very politically difficult to do. But you're saying this is the mechanism by which they could I'm, do I'm it. I'm talking about the mechanism of, of getting reserves down. Now, they
1: rather than s- sell mortgage-backed securities to get reserves down, they can also do this mop-up is really what you're referring to now. And effectively what that means is they go out and borrow money separately, and, and that mops up the reserves. So there's another method to do it. I hope they do none of those methods. I hope they actually get the reserves down and get the mortgage-backed securities off their balance sheet. The sooner they do that, the better, because that's really not monetary policy. That's not what worked. That's not the framework that worked well for 20-plus years in the U.S. and other countries. It's more fiscal policy. It's not what they should be doing. So I'm I'm anxious that they get it back as soon as possible to, to monetary policy as practiced
0: in a way that worked well. But as you're, pointing it out, as you're pointing out, you can't just wave your hands and say, well, let's get back to where we were when things were normal. We've got that problem in a lot of sectors of the economy. Yes. We've got it with the AIG. With the we have it with the auto industry, right? The government's stake uh, with Fannie and Freddie, right? The government is deeply enmeshed in a whole bunch of sectors of the economy, and we all have in the back of our mind, well, when, we get, when things get better, we'll just go back to where we were, but the path is not so obvious. It's not so obvious. Also, if you wait too long to get back, then you
1: maybe lose credibility to ever get back. And so one example of this is during the uh, rescue package in Europe for Greece, etc., our Fed participated in that. Yeah, They made loans to the ECB. They're, do- they're exactly in the dire- opposite direction.
0: European Central Bank, the ECB.
1: Sorry, the Fed made loans to the european central bank using the same techniques using its balance sheet so when in the, exactly in the reverse direction uh, that we're hoping it wasn't it was was not an exit strategy it was staying into this unorthodox policy so that's what you worry about you know if you leave those mortgage backed securities on your books then hey maybe the mortgage market gets weak next year and you start buying a lot more of these things and then monetary policy becomes forever intertwined with fiscal policy. You're sort of stuck, you know, that's a precedent has been formed. So I actually tend to think there's lots of reasons why we should do this more quickly than otherwise. The economy is not going to be hurt by it, so get back to normal as soon as possible and establish that's what we want to do. That worked. That was good policy. Instead of in this never-never land here of unorthodox policy
0: and say, well, it's going to take a while to get out of it. But if Ben Bernanke were sitting here... Um wouldn't he say that in the fall of 2008, I didn't have a choice. I'd lo- I was out of ammunition. But the only thing left was what occasionally gets euphemistically called quantitative easing, which is simply the acquisition of other assets. That, that, that the, at the time when people said the Fed's impotent, it can't do anything, it's pushing on a string. No, it could go and buy these mortgage-backed securities. So what might it have done differently at that point uh, that would have avoided this unwinding problem? I'd say, first of all, this ability to go in and
1: help certain firms, help certain sectors, not help, help other firms and not other sectors, is, I think, really was the major problem in the crisis. There was a panic, let me put it that way. The Fed uh, used its balance sheet to the cre- creditors of Bear Stearns. Uh, it, it pledged some bridge loans, in the case of Fannie and Freddie. Then it pulled back, said no balance sheet for... Lehman Brothers, and the next day it went offered balance sheet for AIG, then it went back, no balance sheet, and we have the TARP. That I think, that back and forth, on again, off again, spooked the markets tremendously. So I, I think there's a great degree of harm caused by the ability to do that. If you, Then you go after the panic, and you talk about the mortgage-backed securities, um, I don't think that did any good. I just look at the numbers and find, maybe you can see an effect there, you can see an effect here, but it's very, very small but it's put the Fed in this precarious situation of people question its independence. How does it reduce this without causing um, turmoil? The period where I think the Fed's actions were helpful was in the middle of the panic. So there was pre-panic bad, post-panic bad, in the panic when they helped the commercial paper market and uh, some of the problems that the money market mutual funds were happening. I think that demonstrated a great degree of... um, uh, coordination with other central banks, with other uh, parts of our government. And I think that was basically helpful, as near as I can, I can see. But in the meantime, you got this bad thing that probably led to the panic, and this thing that's accentuated in the future. So unbalanced, I think, has been
0: very harmful. When you're talking about the money market fund, you're talking about the fact that Reserve Primary, in the wake of the Lehman bankruptcy... Uh, looked like they were going to, well, they did break the buck, meaning they weren't going to be able to honor right away their promises of redemption at par, which uh, caused a lot of people to be very anxious about their money generally. And I think at that point the Fed guaranteed money market funds. Right. And then in addition,
1: they created some facilities where banks could buy the asset-backed securities that the uh, money market funds had to be disposing of. So, there, so, there, and then also the commercial paper market, another short-term money market, which the Fed helped support during that period. So, I, I I mean, it's you have to look at each of these things separately to see whether they worked or not. I think the period during the panic, where I do think it's right to give the Fed credit, is also very hard to tell because other things were happening. The, sure. thing, the thing that is, to me, the most important thing that stopped the panic was the clarification of what the TARP was going to be used for. The, the panic occurred... Primarily from the time the tarp was rolled out, where they were going to buy toxic assets, and nobody could figure out how that was actually going to work.
0: And then a week later, they, they changed, clarified.
1: They changed their mind. So we're they not ch- going to do that. Changed their mind three weeks later, and and the, and, the, and the panic really stopped right away. Not to say that they resolved it completely at that point, but at least
0: it was clarity about what this thing was going to be for. Yeah, I was fine. It's, it's a little bit strange when. Uh, you know, and I say to you, you know, what would you have done? Well, the answer is you wouldn't have gotten into the mess that we got into. And of course, you've written uh, very powerfully in your book, "Getting Off Track," and in your writing on this, that that the failure to follow the Taylor rule—that is, to follow uh, the, the behavioral um, setting of, int- of the federal funds rate—that it worked so well in the past that Greenspan in the three to '02 to '05 period basically held rates too low too long and then pushed them up too fast. Right? Yes. Yes, and,
1: and again, I don't have to look at a Taylor rule to see that. It's just so much different than the policy that was being
0: followed in um, most of the 80s and 90s. Uh, and you and I did it. We've done a couple podcasts on that, so people who want to right. go back and review that can can, can listen, in, listen in on those historical discuss, history discussions. Uh, before we leave monetary policy, one more thing. So what is your uh, best guess of whether... We should be worried about inflation or deflation right now it's, I think it 's a remarkable moment in to to be an economist and to be a certainly it must be a remarkable time to be a grad student. Um, you know we were taught well, money supply is what determines inflation. if the growth of money supplies too fast there's going to be inflation we've had this massive growth in reserves we don 't have any inflation we have, maybe we have some measured deflation, some signs that inflation might be growing now but uh, Where are we on that? Well, Well, monetary theorists
1: use different measures of money, as you know. Um, Friedman always would stress the broader aggregates, the M1, which would include the deposits that, uh, that people hold at banks, or M2, which he actually stressed M2 more, which included other kinds of deposits. So the thing that has exploded so much is the very narrow money, sometimes called central bank money, sometimes called high-powered money, sometimes called the monetary base. That's largely just currency plus what the banks hold at the Fed, at the central bank. So because of the relationship between that narrow money and the broad money has changed, we really haven't had a massive explosion of the broad money. So I think it's consistent with uh, the monetary um, uh, theories. However, um, you also have this recession we're in and traditionally uh, things have to be unusual to get a big increase of inflation in the middle of a recession. It can happen Uh, but also we're getting a slow recovery from a recession. The the major deviations that you see from uh, so-called Phillips curve things where inflation falls in recessions is is the deviations when the economy recovers quickly but the economy is not recovering quickly and so that's another uh, if you like drag on inflation. But I would say that this goes back to this inconsistency uh, in the future. There's a large amount of narrow money will eventually get translated into more broad money as banks start lending and uh, so the question is how will that get resolved? Will the Fed actually be able to bring down that narrow money? And as you mentioned, Alan Meltzer and others are skeptical of that for political reasons. We don't know, but that's an. they're going to have to do that, or we will for sure have a big inflation. There's no question about it. Um, uh, I think somehow people, investors in the bond markets, are discounting that as a possibility strongly. They're looking at some other kind of resolution because the markets don't show uh, much of an increase of inflation coming down the line.
0: Let's turn to the international uh, scene. Uh, You recently were in Poland. Talk about why you went and what you saw there and Poland's experience over the last few years, which is singular as far as I can tell. Well, I went there partially because it is so unusual. The
1: only economy in the European Union, 27 countries that did not have a recession during this Great Recession, the only country of of all those, they have, I think, the reason for this is they didn't really overreact. They kept their policies pretty uh, steady, didn't have a big stimulus package. Uh, Monetary policy basically... uh, Remained pretty steady. They, but in addition, uh, like some other emerging market countries, by the way, Brazil, um, India, they had made some reforms, uh, trying to keep their debt low level low, trying to make sure you didn't borrow too much in foreign currencies, and um, also had this uh, inflation, uh, good monetary policy in place. So I think that's they were in good shape to begin with compared to other countries, even their uh, fellow EU union members, for the most part. So I think that's what the reason was. Now, I have to say, uh, Poland, My first time in Poland was 1989, and that was just when they were moving from central planning to markets. And it was uh, the finance minister at the time, Leszek Waszorowicz, and so I admired him greatly at the time and had a chance to renew our acquaintance in this trip. And he's a very um, impressive strong leader. That's what you needed at that time. And I would add that not right now, but in the years leading up to this crisis, he was central bank governor in Poland and I think made some
0: good decisions along the lines that have uh, been helpful. So I guess when I, if, when I, you've got a chart on your blog, we'll put a link up to it that, that shows Poland's experience for all the rest of the, uh, the EU. I guess my first thought would be this data error there. They must have <laughs> miscounted mis- <laughs> mis- GDP or something. Um, does it um, does it feel like it's a healthy economy? Is it when you look around? Does it look healthy? Is their unemployment rate low? Is um,
1: it, it, yeah? I mean, let, let's let's face it. You walk we're, here we are in Palo Alto, California, and Stanford. it looks pretty healthy. I know. You know I've like always that. been fascinated. You have to I think, watch what you're doing. Short of a Great
0: Depression, yeah. it's not. Um, you can't really see it. Uh, you have macroeconomics.
1: W- you have to watch what you're doing, you know, sometimes parking lots at the shopping centers and various places. I'd say to me, for Poland, the biggest comparison is 1989, 21 years ago, where the place was dirty, pollution was terrible, hardly any shops. To me, people looked kind of glum. Now, Warsaw was also in Poznań. There's a vibrancy. There's um, um, shops, there's things to do. The, the place is so much cleaner. That's the one thing that's amazing. Just the public service is, is so much better. And so I, um, that's the main thing I noticed. It's really not comparing Germany versus Poland and the state of the economy at this point, but that longer term thing, which is very impressive.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Um, of course, maybe they just took you to the nice neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> When when you talk about their policy environment relative to the rest of the EU, are they noticeably less interventionist in terms of the stimulus? Did did most or almost all the EU countries Mm -hmm. respond to the current crisis with much more uh, intervention? Yes. Yes, I believe so. Now,
1: I have to preface this answer because it's very hard to tell, uh, quite frankly. It takes a lot of work to determine really what is a stimulus and what isn't. Sure. Uh, I think the U.S. has been relatively transparent on our stimulus package. You can go. I'd say relatively, yeah. You can go and figure out uh, how much is being spent. But uh, China, completely the opposite. It is so hard to figure out what the money has been spent for, how much has been spent. Now, in Poland, it's interesting because, um, like many countries um, whose governments may have been reluctant to move towards stimulus, they were being challenged by international groups or by their opposition parties. you got to do more. Do this. Do stim- you know, have this stimulus. You you, it happened that during that period, the G20 was, was forcing everybody to take a stimulus. And so they went through that, and to best of I can tell is they, what they did was effectively describe the policies that they were taking anyway as stimulus,
0: uh-huh. You know, it's,
1: you know how you can do that. You have because tax revenues may have been scheduled to change, and they say they may be tax rates are going down. Anyways, oh, that's our stimulus, uh-huh. and so t- for the for the most part, and I guess people need to do a lot more work on this. One of the greatest research opportunities is all these natural experiments around the world because of all the packages. But I think for the most part, they uh, resisted. They didn't overdo it. They they stayed um, calm. And I think that was a big difference.
0: What about what's going on in Greece? Um, uh, Today in the paper, Greece has decided to raise their retirement age from under 50 to 65. Interesting idea. Uh, Changed the generosity of the pension plans for, I think, public employees or maybe everybody. Uh, So they've taken what appear to be necessary steps towards some fiscal uh, responsibility. Uh, I don't think it's fully passed yet. It hasn't quite made it into law, uh, but it seems to be a, a big change for them, and maybe they'll get out of this. Um, but a lot of people are are pointing to our longer run situation, particularly with respect to entitlements, Medicare and, and Social Security, particularly, as the Greece is a bit of a, a wake up call for us. Others say that's ridiculous. We're, we're, we have we're nothing like them. We don't we don't have the same. Uh, fragility in capital markets that they have. Our ability to borrow is always going to be strong, etc. Do you think there's any, what lessons do you learn from what's happened in Greece for us?
1: I think the lessons are very strong. Uh, First of all, this is another example of things I've stressed that these crises are largely caused or prolonged by government actions. Those deficits are, are, the private sector didn't do that, Those those are government actions, and they have been harmful to Greece. Uh, they they have, uh, can't borrow. It's been harmful to all of Europe. Uh, so it, to me, it's, th- there's an important lesson there is that governments need to get their acts together to prevent this kind of thing from happening. And I think there the lesson for the U.S. is pretty strong. Uh, our debt-to-GDP ratios, as I m- has, have emphasized, uh, with our current policies, are expected to, ra- to rise much more than Greece has at this point. So you have to have faith that somehow we're going to make the adjustment. I certainly hope we do, but it's not there yet. And so you have to take it seriously. I mean, you just can't say it's going to go away. You have got to take some action. You have got to say, okay, here's what happened in Greece. We don't want to let that happen in the United States, but it could happen. And you know, if we don't, if we don't make some some uh, adjustments, some hard adjustments, it could happen. Um, so I think it's it is an important uh, lesson uh, in many respects. I, I think you. You can go to extremes and say this is going to hurt the U.S. economy right now because we do have time to make the changes, but what we have to do right away is lay out the plan. You don't have to do everything right now, right. but you have to lay out the plan so that you can get started on it.
0: Do you understand what's going on with or what's, what, how do you understand the, uh, the attractiveness of U.S. assets, particularly treasuries, you know, the standard explanations of flight to safety? But, as you point out we 're doing a lot of things that certainly don 't seem to predict that they 're going to be safe. Uh, why is it or well, let me say it differently if the rest of the world got its act together and their assets looked more attractive uh, would the u s find itself forced to pay higher and higher rates because there doesn 't seem to be anything on the horizon doesn 't see any there 's no expectation of inflation uh, and there 's no risk premium built into treasuries despite what appears to be our um, our profligate behavior. How do you understand that?
1: I think the U.S. is still viewed as a country that will get its act together. I think there's a sense that we have in the past, we'll do it again. To me, as someone interested in public policy, that's not enough because I know <laughs> someone's got to actually do, do it. It's it, not yeah. just going to actually happen. Yeah, it's not so, a- but I think that if you're an investor, you're probably thinking in those terms. I also think that there's a... Um, In terms of interest rates, there's probably a view out there that we're going to have kind of a slow period here for a while, and so that's going to dampen inflation. That's going to dampen interest rates. So There's probably out there, as part of the forecast, is a possibility of lower growth, lower potential growth. Uh, Again, I, I hope that doesn't happen as well, but I think that's also consistent. And then finally, I think there is a tendency... Uh, when you're thinking about the future, for investors to sometimes be thinking of that the rosy scenario is going to actually pan out in a way. And just, you know, it goes back to this time is different view that uh, uh, Rogoff and Reinhardt write about. This this time is different, but maybe it isn't different. You know, maybe we are not, the United States isn't different. We're, we are going to have to um, make some adjustments. And what I mean to say by all this is that when you're, investing and thinking about prices, there can be inconsistencies out inconsistencies out there that have to do with the psychology of how people price assets or what they think about the future. And uh, to me, the inconsistency is not resolved at this point in an obvious way. And so that's why I think there's still a lot of uncertainty.
0: My guest today has been John Taylor. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you.